We know that you inhabit the praises of your people, Lord. And so, as we uh, just praise your name, Lord, we um, want you want you to know, Lord, that we present ourselves to you now, Lord. And we ask, Lord, that you would reveal your truth to us, Lord. We pray for a supernatural move of your Spirit on each of our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would put a passion in our heart for you, Lord. I pray that you would help us to not be distracted about the things of this world. I pray for those who are weary, those who are heavy laden, those who are stressed, those who are discouraged. I pray that you'd minister to them by your word tonight. We want to pray for Israel, Lord, the peace of Israel. We want to pray for their protection, and we want to pray for their salvation in you, Lord. And so thank you for this night. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, can you say hello to someone, please? All right. Come on in, everybody. Have a seat. All right, come on in. Grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Galatians, please. The book of Galatians, the glorious gospel of grace. To truly understand the gospel is to truly understand the good news. Did you know that if you are a believer in Christ here this evening, that you cannot be more saved? Did you know that? You're maximum saved? That's good news, isn't it? And you know what's good news too? You cannot be more righteous. Your maximum righteous is filled to the full. And that's because of grace. That's because of what Christ has done for us. And this is what the Apostle Paul is uh, expressing in this letter to the churches in the area of Galatia because there is a group that followed Paul as he went and uh, planted these churches and instructed them in this gospel of grace. And uh, then there were those who came behind him and preached another gospel. And that was a gospel, you might want to say, grace plus. So they were saying, yes, Jesus died rose again, that's great. Put your faith in him, but you also need to do this stuff. Particularly, you need to become a Jew because only Jews can be saved. So you need to become a Jew. You need to go through Jewish rituals and Jewish ceremonies. Uh, If you're a male, you need to be circumcised and you need to go through this. So this is what Paul is dealing with. And he's basically trying to emphasize the point of it's only grace plus nothing. And because of grace that we have the confidence as we stand before God, we stand completely holy, righteous, and justified in Him. And that is good news. And maybe we don't share the good news enough because maybe it's not good enough news. But you know, when there's something really good that you know, you want to share it. When there's something really amazing, our first instinct is to want want other people to know. And if you're a believer tonight, you have the greatest thing that a human being can ever have. And that's salvation through grace, through what Christ has done. So we're really going to do a deep dive in chapter 3. Lord willing, we'll get into chapter 4. And Paul is really going for it now, really trying to explain with every different way that he can of what what this gospel is. We left off last week in chapter 2, verse 21, where he said, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. In other words, it's, it can't be both. It's, it's either works or it's grace. It's either God's righteousness or self-righteousness. And he appeals to the cross. And he says, well, what is that all about if we can be saved by our own efforts and our own works? And so he goes from that 
And he says in verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 1, he says, O foolish Galatians. And just like we would think uh, of that word, that actually means unintelligent. You unintelligent Galatians, or sorry to say this word, but you, you dummies. You're stupid. That's what he's saying. And you notice, I, I don't know, in your Bible, there's an exclamation point in my Bible because there's an emphasis. This is very emotional because Paul understands that we cannot be saved by a mixture of what God does and a mixture of what we do. And so he's saying, how can you do this? How can you think this? And he says, who has the interesting term, bewitched you? Do you guys remember that show? Anybody? There's a show, that, and that, that, if you know what it is, then that tells you how old you are. <laughs> Who has bewitched you? And that's an interesting word, too, because uh, kind of like we might think bewitched, it, it means who has sort of charmed you or put a spell on you or seduced you into thinking that you can contribute by your works to your righteousness. Why, who has tricked you? Who has put a spell on you? But there's something in us, in human beings, that wants to feel like we're doing something ourselves to be saved. Something we have to watch out for because we're sort of prone to that, prone to this feeling like, I want to be better by what I do. And so just to be really clear that if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, you can't be more saved and you can't be more righteous. That's what he's dealing with. And so he says, who's tricking you? Who's bringing this doctrine, which last week he said it's a, a different doctrine, a false doctrine. Any addition of human works to salvation, he said, in chapter 1, let them, let them be accursed if they're bringing that in. This, this is not a, a mild thing, and this is just not a subjective thing. This is, if you bring works into salvation in any way, shape, or form, then that's, he would say, that's a damning doctrine. You can't be saved that way. So who has done this to you? That notice he says that you should not obey the truth. And that word is so important because you and I are in a battle for the truth. And so there's so many different ideologies, different philosophies that are coming into the church. And many people say, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong if you believe works and faith? Are, are both equal, or what if there's just, you know, the world's changed so much from the time that we've had this doctrine. That, what's so bad about this? And the reason that Paul says it's bad is because it's all about the truth. When we think of things in terms of that, what's wrong with this philosophy, this ideology, this thing? Is it that bad? Well, is it the truth? If it's not the truth, then what is it? It's a lie. So we have these Bibles in our hands. Now, why, why did God give us his word? Did he give us his word to add into all these different other ideas and philosophies? No, he gave us his word because it's truth. And it is only the truth that sets one free. And that's for salvation but it's also for our daily living, our life. As we orient our life according to the truth, living our life out practically according to the truth, the way God has revealed it in scriptures, this is how we live free. We live by the truth that sets us free. So he says somebody's just brought in this doctrine and, and, and now you're, you're going down a road where um, you've been saved from this road, and now you're going back to this road, this, this religious workspace righteousness, and that you've been tricked, you've been pulled away from the truth. He says, B 
before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. So his whole argument was that when he came to those churches in Galatia, his, his truth that he was telling them was that Jesus truly came, truly died, truly rose again, that whoever would put their faith in him would be saved. And so he's saying, that I, I laid that out clearly. That was clearly portrayed to you. So in verse 2, I, I, he says, this, this is what I want to know. I want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So he equates salvation here with the receiving of the Spirit. That's interesting. That's an interesting way that he describes it. But we know what happens when we get saved, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit comes and dwells in us, the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, you received the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? How did you receive the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Holy Spirit by trying to be good? By living according to Jewish laws and regulations? When you would make the sacrifices, when you would keep the Sabbath days, did the Holy Spirit come in you when you did that? It's a rhetorical question. He would say, no, of course not. But when did the Holy Spirit come in you? It's when I came and I preached the gospel to you. And you put your faith in the gospel and the Holy Spirit came and lived inside of you. So then he says in verse 3, so he says, so are you so foolish? So the same word that he used in the beginning. Are you so foolish? Are you so dumb? Are you so unintelligent? Are you so, sorry, but stupid? That having begun in the Spirit, that now you're being made perfect in the flesh. And that word perfect is what we would uh, sort of understand of being Christ-like or the sanctification process. So after we're saved, then God works in us to make us more like Him. And that's a process. And it's a process of the working of the Holy Spirit in us. So this is what happens when someone gets saved and they say, okay, I'm saved now. Now i got to try really hard to be good. And I have to really not do these things and do these things. And then we start making a list of, of these things. And he's saying, you weren't saved like that. You weren't made positionally righteous that way. So you should not think that in the sanctification process that it's up to you and your work and your effort to be made righteous. What he's saying is, righteousness practically after we're saved or becoming Christ-like, that also is a work of the Spirit in us. So it's a work of the Spirit in us that we surrender to. So our job is to allow the Holy Spirit to work in us. And we do that as positionally righteous because of our faith. So our works don't have anything to do with our salvation or meeting the righteous requirements of God, those were all met by Jesus Christ. So whenever we start to feel condemning of ourselves, or we say we're not good enough or we're not living up to the standard or we're failing, then we start to feel like we're going to lose our salvation or maybe we're not really saved. And when we do that, we start to entertain the idea that we actually had something to do with our salvation. But we need to settle that issue that we don't have anything to do with our salvation except for receive what Christ did on the cross, the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is so freeing. And we have to really get that settled in our mind because Satan will constantly come and tempt us 
and make us feel condemned when we don't practically live up to a certain standard. And that's why the Bible says there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the whole issue has been settled. We can't be more saved. And we can't get unsaved. And if we blew it on the way to church today, that doesn't affect our status before God because our whole status before God is based on what He did and not what we do. And so he, he's saying, so you're, you're saved now. You receive the Holy Spirit. And that was an important thing for Paul we see here. So now you sort of just discount the Holy Spirit, and now you're going to try to be right with God with your own self-righteousness? He's saying that's foolish to do that. In verse 4, he says, have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? In other words, you go through a lot when you become a Christian, especially in their culture, but we do too. And he's saying, did, did you go through all that for no reason, if now you're going to go back into works? Because most people are okay with the works-based righteousness. That's not really threatening to people because generally we think we're decently good people. Mankind thinks that we're good people. And so he said that, that suffering, all that, that you went through because of your faith that you put in Jesus Christ and your righteousness that has come from him and not from yourself, you went through a lot. And now is that all for no reason? Because now you're going back to the very thing that you did before, before you got saved. He says, therefore, he who supplies the Spirit, who's that? Who supplies the Spirit? God, God the Father. He gives us the Spirit, and he says, who works miracles among you? Does he do it by the works of the law? So by being self-righteous and trying to live by rules, does that bring about the supernatural things in, in your life and the supernatural things that you saw happen among you? Did, that, did it happen because people are living by rules? Or did it happen by faith, he says? Obviously, we, we know where he's going with that. So then he says, just as, so he gives us an example, just as Abraham, oh, wait a second. So now he's probably really getting their ears to perk up because he's going back over 400 years before Moses even, preceding Moses, Abraham. So Abraham was sort of this figure where everything for the Jews started happening through Abraham. He was the first guy where all the things of what we see in Judaism now and throughout all the ages, it started with Abraham. So he goes all the way back even before the Ten Commandments or the law came in. So there's something in law, in like legal law, called precedent. Is that correct, Bob? Bob Carpenter says that's correct. <laughs> so there's something called precedent, which means a, a previous case, you kind of go back to that to see how to rule on cases after that. So there's a precedent. The precedent is the guy where the whole thing with Judaism, Moses, the law, the Sabbath, all of that, it all started with Abraham. And so how was Abraham made right with God? It says Abraham believed God. And because of that, it was accounted to him for righteousness. So being right with God has always been about believing, faith, trusting in God. And the act of a human being that trusts in God means they get credited to their account 
rightness or righteousness with God. So righteousness never came from self, but always came from belief. I'd like to, I'm risking not finishing chapter 4, but I'm going to go ask you to turn to the book of Genesis, verse 15. I'm sorry, chapter 15. And that's so we can just really get a feel of what's going on. So if you turn to Genesis, you realize that you're really close to the beginning, right? So not a lot of pages like here. Look at my, I just have this many pages, that's it. So it's like right in the beginning. So look what happens with uh, Abraham in chapter 15. I'm just going to read uh, together through verse 6. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. That's Abraham, later changed to Abraham. In a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abraham said, Lord, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. So, in chapter 12, if you'll turn a little bit to the left, and you look at chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord makes a promise to Abram, a.k.a. Abraham. So the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So turn over to chapter 15. So Abraham's sitting there and he's like, so there's this promise that I have about families and nations and I don't have a kid. That doesn't seem like a too good of a deal. So he's saying, Lord, how is this going to work? What will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus, meaning he doesn't have someone from his own lineage, his own son. And so Abraham said, or Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This one shall not be your heir. So Eleazar, the one you're thinking, well, maybe Eleazar, he's not even from my people. He's from Damascus. He's not even, you know, my kid. And maybe it's him that you're going to raise. But that's not what God said. So God says, this one shall not be your heir, but one will come from your own body shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so your your descendants shall be. And then he believed in the Lord and God accounted it to him for righteousness. So turn back with me to Galatians. So it, it was just it was just a simple act that, that God said something and he believed it. And because of that, he was deemed righteous in God's eyes. So now when we read in verse 6 of chapter 3 of Galatians, That's what this is referring to, that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So that set a precedent 
for everybody after Abraham that righteousness always comes by faith and never by works. So in verse 7 it says, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Do you know why he's saying that? Because the Jews and then those who are coming to Galatia with the false doctrine, so they, they were saying that you have to be Jewish to truly be right with God, that, that you have to convert to Judaism. And they are also thinking that just because they were Jews genetically, that that in and of itself made them right with God. But he's saying a true son of Abraham. So if you're of faith, if, if you're a believer, then you are a true son of Abraham. So you are a sort of a spiritual Jew because it was always that those who believe would be those who are connected with Abraham. The Jewish people over time felt like it was their heritage and their genetics that made them sons of Abraham. And in one sense, they are right from that sense. But what God was really trying to do through Abraham was bring about a people of faith that believed in him. It's heavy, huh? So good. So in verse 8, he says, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, so those who were not Jews, which was another contention that someone who wasn't Jewish could actually be saved. But what we see is that was from the beginning too. That was all through Abraham too. So it wasn't just a new thing when Jesus came, but it was talked about, preached about through Abraham. And I love in verse 8 how it says, Scripture foreseeing. So all those verses we read, all the way back in the very beginning of our Bible, were preaching to us today. How cool is that? You think the Old Testament is important? Think we should unhitch from the Old Testament? We should not. Because those scriptures were preaching to us. We just read that. So all the way back in Abraham's day, God foresaw us in our time, and he was preaching the gospel to us through Abraham. That God would justify the Gentiles, how? Look at it, look, how? By faith. Preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So now we know what that means. We have the the commentary in the scripture of that promise that was given to Abraham in chapter 12 and chapter 15, that all the nations would be blessed. That was the gospel preaching in the Old Testament that there would come one from Abraham's line that would be the Savior of the world and that belief in that Savior would bring about righteousness. So the gospel is in the Old Testament. Verse 9 says, So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Did you know you're blessed? If you believe, you're blessed. That's how you get blessed, believing. Not by working, not by uh, setting a schedule to where you get up extra early and read your Bible, which I highly encourage you to do. But don't do that and say, well, I should be blessed now because I spent all this time reading my Bible and I should be blessed more than anybody else. It doesn't work like that. We're blessed by believing, not by working. We work because we love God. We love to get up at 4.30, some of us, some of you, some of you. We love to worship God. We love to read our Bible. We do it, and yeah, maybe sometimes it takes some discipline, but 
to know God is to love him, to love to worship him, to love to worship him with God's people, to love to share the gospel, to love to use our gifts that he's given us, to love to pray, love that we do that because we want to and we get to, not because we have to. And if we don't, we're, we're going to be ruined. We don't earn blessings. We just believe and he blesses us. Is that good news? That's great news. Don't ever try to change the gospel to, to make it bad news. <laughs> to, to make it, well, you have to do all and put heavy burdens on people. We've been free from those things. Being a Christian is free. It's a amazing. It's a blessing. It's life and that more abundantly. It's not a big bummer of having to do all these things. And I hope you're here because you want to be here, not because you feel guilty for not coming here. I hope you're because you want to be here. Because you love God, you love His Word, you love His people. And you see in His Word, He says, don't forsake the meeting of one another together. So you do that. And you say, oh, that's a blessing. Praise the Lord. Definitely not getting to chapter 4. but <laughs> Verse 10, for... As many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in what? All the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So you, you would have to do all the law all the time. What's the law? Starts with the Ten Commandments and morphed into many other commandments through the Jewish Talmud and Mishnah, which are more laws and more traditions. And in order to be right with God, you have to do all of them all the time and never not do them. And he's pointing out that living that way is living under a curse. And so if you feel condemned or you feel like you don't measure up or you're not doing enough for God and you start to feel that, just realize it's probably because you're inviting the curse of the law in your life. And go back to the realization that you can't be more saved and you can't be more righteous. Just settle that issue once and for all, lay it down and move on from there. Move on to walk and enjoy the freedom you have in Christ, and that freedom is to enjoy Him. But don't get stuck there. It is finished. He saved us. He set us free. And you access that just by your belief, by faith. If you want to live by a law, and that, that's why the people that were being addressed here, the Judaizers, you would say, or those people that came to the churches at Galatians, Galatia and say, well, well, now you're saved, but you have to do all this stuff too, or you're not, not going to be totally saved, or you're not fully saved, and just maybe a little saved, but you need to be more saved. And so here's all this stuff. And then all, all of a sudden, there's like, oh man, okay. And now they're, they're inviting a curse in their life, burden, heaviness, the things that they've been set free from, the guilt and the shame, all that we've been set free from. So he, he's telling them, if you want to live like that, you're living under a curse unless you do all of it. And that is, that is really hard. And it really brings so much burden and heaviness. And that's why I love how Jesus says, my burden is light, my yoke is easy. To follow him is light and easy. So be careful of inviting things of self-righteousness and the law into your relationship with God. Verse 11, he says, but that no one is justified. Justified just uh, is, a, is a good way to declared righteous before God. So no one's declared righteous before God. Or in, it says, no one is justified, declared righteous by the law in the sight of God. And he says, that's evident. How is that evident? For the just shall live by faith. He goes back to Scripture. And he's pointing back to it's, it's always been like this. You know, sometimes you think, well, maybe God has a different plan of salvation for the Jewish people. Do they come 
to faith. It's, it's all, that's what he's pointing out. There's no different plan. Even the plans for the Jewish people, they got really close to the plan. They were part of the plan, but it's all the same way. There's not a, another door, another avenue. It's all through Jesus Christ for everybody. Verse 12, he says, Yet the law is not of faith. So keeping rules, thinking that we're righteous by in our maybe in our kind of uh, practical application wise is going to church makes me righteous it doesn't make you righteous you're already righteous come to church because you're righteous not to get righteous we have to get that ingrained in us it's by faith and that faith in Christ it's been accounted to us so so the things that we do get this the things that we do do not contribute at all to our righteousness. The things that we do do not make us more righteous. Everything that Christ did makes us righteous. It's So stop, settle it, rest in it, enjoy it. It's done. And now walk in that. And so in verse 12, he's saying that the law is not of faith. It's a, he's saying it's a different thing. So living by rules or religious traditions, it's not the same as faith. They're different things. But the man who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, that's why it's so heavy because we can't do it. So Christ, in verse 13, he has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So there it is. What that means is he took our place. He suffered what we should have suffered. He was judged when we should have been judged. He was killed when we should have been killed. And it is our faith in His work that brings to us the work of Christ. So we receive His work in our place by faith in Him. That's a pretty good deal. There's nothing better than that. But we can't get around the fact that this, this law it brings a cursing. So in verse 14, it says that the blessing of Abraham, so remember the covenant with Abraham, chapter 12, chapter 15, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. Now watch this that it might come upon the Gentiles or the non-Jews. How? In Christ. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit. How? Through faith. So now we understand the promise of Abraham, but all of the working from that point on through Judaism and through the Jews now we can understand all of that was pointing to or a gospel presentation, whether it be in, a, in an act or a ceremonial ritual or a story or an event. All of those things in the Old Testament were preaching the gospel and pointing to Christ. Verse 15, Brethren, I speak, in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. What does that mean? He's talking about just someone who makes a deal with someone. So when you, you make a deal, a contract, and that's it. So you have a deal, a contract, a covenant with someone. He's just kind of comparing it to like just in worldly terms. So he says in verse 16, he says, Now to Abraham 
and his seed, wait a second, do you see something unusual with that word seed? Capital S. What does that mean? It's talking about God. So that's interesting because the Jews thought that they were blessed because they were the seed of Abraham. So all the Jews came from Abraham. So they thought because they came from Abraham, they were blessed. But wait a second. Now we're getting some clarity about that. And in regards to the promise that to Abraham and his seed, capital S, so that's referring to Jesus, were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, little s, plural. So it's not the Jewish nation is, is blessed just because they're connected to Abraham. That's a mistake. He says, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, Jesus, who is the Christ. So we know who the seed is. It's the Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, so after Abraham, the law came through Moses. And the law was the whole thing the Jews in the time of Paul here. And even in our time, this is what they're hanging their hat on. Is the law, keeping the law, keeping the rules. Keeping the ceremonies, keeping the traditions. And he's saying 430 years before that was Abraham. The law came later. So he says, this cannot, so that when the law came, it cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of God of no effect. You guys doing okay? That's, I know, it's heavy, huh? So what he's saying is, in human terms, when you make a contract, and you sign it, then that's a contract. You don't, you don't change it. It's, it's, it's done. And so are you saying that God had a deal with Abraham? When the law came 430 year, years later, it j- didn't change the deal with Abraham. So in verse 18, for if the inheritance is of the law, so if we receive the blessings that God has said that would come through Abraham, if we receive them, it's not through the law. And if if it is, it's no longer a promise. Do you see how he's saying it's one or the other? It's either the promise that God gave to Abraham or then the law that came later saying if you do the law perfectly, then, then you're good, which nobody can do. So, for 18, for if the inheritance is of the law, it's no longer of the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. So it's a promise. It's not a deal. It's just God saying, I promise. This is a, a covenant that God made. And so this is what God was going to do. That was his contract, if you will. It's really a one-sided contract. And he's saying, this is what I'm going to do. And it's a promise. So in verse 19, then here's here's what would be swirling around the people of Galatia who have sort of gotten sidetracked and gone away from belief and faith, gotten into the law and the mixture of the law. So then you're saying, well, what's, what's the point of the whole Moses, Ten Commandments, all these things we've been doing for all these years? What's the whole point of that? Why is that even a thing? Which is a good question. So he says in verse 9, so what is the purpose then, or what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed, till Jesus, so there'd be a time that the law would serve some sort of purpose until the time Jesus came. 
till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So apparently angels gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. Verse 20, now a mediator does not mediate for only one. So Moses was given the law through a mediator, and he's saying like to have a mediator, you need two parties. But then he says, but God is one. So what he's saying is, this is amazing. I had to read this a whole bunch of times, by the way. I'm like, what in the world? But what he's saying is, it wasn't a, a two-sided contract. It was just God's promise to him. Whereas the Ten Commandments were sort of the two-sided contract where you do these things and then you'll be righteous. The promise of Abraham, which preceded the law of Moses, was not. it wasn't based on anything that we do. It was just a promise that God said, if you believe, then you'll be righteous. So in verse 18, no, sorry, verse 21. So is the law then against the promises of God? So now you'd think, well, man, the law kind of seems bad. Is it bad? Is the law bad? Like, what, what's the purpose? Like, the promise seems way better but God gave the law, and did you, did you notice? He said that the law would be given because of transgression. So what did he mean by that? So 430 years after Abraham's promise that the seed would come and our righteousness would be by faith, but people are getting out of control because the flesh is so unruly. And so God had to give a law to constrain sin. It's sort of like, so just imagine if there were no traffic laws and just driving around and there's no speed limits, there's no lights, there's no stop signs, there's no, just imagine what that would be like. So what God did is in a way to preserve mankind, he gave them a law and said, look, you need to live up to these standards or else you're gonna just all die off and so they're given these standards and those standards which we know as the ten commandments were basically the the heart of god it's the character of god those re god is a holy god so it reflected his holiness but by them being able to keep those it restrained it's sort of like uh, being on house arrest so someone just can't control themselves, so they, they stay at home and they have a beeper on, and they can't go too far out of the house. The law was like that, just to constrain people who couldn't constrain themselves. But also, the law did more than restrain people. It also revealed the heart of man. So it sort of served two purposes. So then in verse 21, again, it's, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. So if you think they're sort of opposite or conflicting, you're not thinking of it correctly, here's why. He said, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. So there's the limitation of the law. The law can restrain evil by showing us what evil is and showing us what's wrong. Did you know that we really wouldn't even know what's wrong if we didn't have the law? We wouldn't know murder's wrong or adultery's wrong or kill. We wouldn't know that. So God gave that. So then we can say, okay, this, these are things that were wrong, or wrong, these are wrong behaviors, wrong actions. So there's some sort of standard that we can live up to. So 
in verse 22, but the scripture has confined all under sin. So everyone is confined under sin. The law shows us that. The, the law demonstrates that. And then he says that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So here's how they work together. So the law is important because the law shows us that we can't be righteous enough and we aren't righteous. That's what the law does. So the law tells us it can't be through self-righteousness. It must be through something else. And here he's pointing out it's through that promise. It's through faith. So the law is actually useful to show us that we need faith because we can't live by the law. We're not good enough to do that. So there's the beauty of how the law works together with faith. Verse 23, it says, But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. So this law, like someone being on house arrest, it would protect us until the time where we were let off. We were no longer under house arrest or we're no un long, longer under law, but he's saying that in Abraham's time it was pointing that there'd be a certain time when that happened. And so until that time, the law served its purpose to restrain and to reveal. But in verse 24, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So it's sort of like, I don't know what you guys would want to get tutored in, but I was terrible at algebra, and I wish I had a tutor. But, so say you have an algebra tutor, and the algebra, algebra tutor is so good that you know algebra. Why do you know algebra? Because the tutor taught you algebra. So do you still need the tutor? Why do you need the tutor to come? You know algebra now. That's what he's saying. The law is good, one, it's, it's protective because it shows that there, there's morality, there's right and wrong. But it also teaches you, like a tutor, it teaches you that you can't live up to it. But when you know that, when you're educated in that, when the law, when you are, are taught by the tutor, by the law, when, when you know it, then you don't need the law anymore. Because now you know that. So in verse 25, it says, But after faith has come, we are no longer under the law. So when you have faith in Christ, the requirements have all been fulfilled. The righteous requirements by Jesus Christ, our sins have been washed away. We're not under law anymore. We don't, in other words, we don't live that way anymore. We're different. Instead of living by rules, we live by faith. When you live by faith, you don't need any rules. If you live by faith, you're probably not going to kill somebody. You're probably not going to be someone who steals all the time and someone who lives. You don't need that because you're living for God. So now you're really free. Whatever got you in house arrest, when you're off and you don't do whatever got you in, then you stay out. And that's what he's saying. Now, if you're in Christ, 
you know now you can't be good enough. And so you've now understood the purpose of the law. Now you live by faith in the Son of God. And so now you're free. You don't need rules. You live for God. And there's no rules if you live for God. Because He's satisfied all the requirements. And so you live for Him. And that's, if, do you remember Galatians 2.20? I quote it all the time. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's how we live. So we don't live by rules. We live by faith. Verse 26. For you are all sons of God. How? Through faith in Christ Jesus. So now you go, your, your status changes. This is really, really heavy. So you go, by faith, you go into a relationship with God where he calls you sons of God. So there's a, a, a family relationship now. So he truly is your father. And in chapter 4, which we're not going to get to, He's our Abba. You know, that's different, right? So, you know, a lot of the sitcoms before my time, I want to stress that, you'd see them sitting at the table in suits and the women would wear like really nice dresses and the father would be at the head of the table and they always say, Father, will you pass the butter, please? That's one thing. It's a whole other thing to have a kid jumping on your back and saying, Daddy, Daddy, let's play. Let's wrestle. Let's tackle. Let's throw the ball. Daddy, if you are in Christ, he is your father, but he is your Abba also, your daddy. We have that relationship with him that we've been brought in as sons, and you could say daughters, but as children of God. So that our relationship now is not one to where we're under a curse and under judgment, but because of what Christ has done, now we're free. And now our relationship is such where He is our Father and He is our Abba. Verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized in Christ. That just means immersed in Christ. That's what happens when we put our faith in Christ. We have put on Christ. So there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's a great equalizer. There's no inferiority. There's no race differences. There's no gender differences. There's no In Christ, we're all children of God. That's your identity. That's your identity. If you're a believer, you're a child of God. That's how you should see yourself. You shouldn't see yourself any other way but a child of God. Because that is the highest calling that we are sons and daughters of. Of God. So in verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. And then he says, we're heirs according to the promise. So we're heirs, which means that we inherit all the things of God. We inherit his kingdom as children of God. And so the implications of the gospel, I hope we see here tonight are so amazing and so big that we should be great embracers of the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we should relish in it, walk in it, savor it, enjoy it, and share it. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. So sweet. So good. It's all we need, Lord. 
I pray for all of us here that we'd remember who we are in you, Lord. As Satan tries to tempt us away from this great gospel, as he tries to tempt us away from our great inheritance, our great identity in you, our great position in Christ as sons and daughters of God, I pray that we'd be always able to come back to these scriptures and remember who we are, that we've been bought with a price, that we're no longer our own, that our future is more than bright, it's eternal, and it's with you. Let us live with great joy, no matter what we may go through here on earth, you are greater, Lord, and our future is great. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great night, and Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday.